one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 411 for the week of Monday, April 2nd, 2012. No joke. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. Good evening. How's it going? Alrighty, thank you. And welcome as well, Mark Rotterman. Good to be here. Howdy. I'll take it none of us won the U.S. Mega Millions lottery, so we're all still here. I, I, I didn't forgot. get one bleeping number. <laughs> I had four tickets, and I didn't get one number. I got one number on five tickets. So obviously we're all still here. We didn't <laughs> win the lottery, so let's plow ahead. And let's get right into things with our first story, which we're going to go back to a TV program that we referenced two weeks ago, and that is the CBS show 60 Minutes, which airs Sunday nights on CBS. And they did a piece, a very interesting piece, on the current condition of the Space Coast. Now, what they did was they went down to Brevard County, which is home to the Kennedy Space Center and the so-called Space Coast on Florida, and they took a look at former shuttle employees and others who were involved with the program and other businesses that were involved with the program to see what has happened to them since the shuttle program ended back in July of 2011. And it was amazing and heart-wrenching at the same time to see the terrible changes that have gone on in Brevard County, Florida. They brought up one person who worked on the shuttle, and he was among a group who they interviewed months prior to the actual launch of the final space shuttle mission. And he said that, and this is a rough quote, the day I wake up and I'm dead is the day I don't go to work. And that's amazing dedication, because he didn't know what he would do. And here he is out of job. And that's really hard to see, and he's barely struggling to make it through. They also took a look at some major businesses. For example, one that they took a look at that's become a staple for anybody who's been down to the Space Coast. It's called Shuttles. And they have plenty of memorabilia, and astronauts and fellow visitors alike go to eat there and have a drink and... They took a look at that a couple of months prior to launch, in fact, prior to launch, and they said that they were cutting down business to about eight people instead of 20, but they said that if they had to, it would just be the owner, his son, and a chef running that place. They weren't going to let it go. Months later, as they visited, everything remained on the walls only because he could not bear to take it down after losing the restaurant. It was just heart-wrenching, and the one line... That really got me. It was the last line that they ended it with. They were talking about the space shuttle Atlantis. They said, this is a quote from the CBS 60 Minutes episode airing April 1st, 2012. 
Quote, she was designed for 100 missions, but flew only 33. Like so many in Brevard County, she was pulled from the service of her country long before she was ready. Jean, I know you saw this piece, right? Yeah, my question also to the press, you know, the mainstream press, was where the heck were you guys, you know, before everything happened? Um, we all knew that shuttle was going away. We all knew that that there was going to be a hiatus because it didn't look like the you know it didn't look like there was going to be a clear successor to uh, to the uh, the space transportation system. the The decision to retire them has been a bone of contention of who really did it and so on. And actually, I still believe it was the Columbia Accident Investigation Board that really really sealed the the shuttle's fate. But you know, again, where was the media after you know knowing? That all of this was going to occur. I made the same observation when we were, that when you know, all four of us were over at um, the Kennedy Space Center uh, to cover the launch of STS-135. I remember out that morning and at you know, two o'clock in the morning, uh, observing tanking and looking around and go, you know, looking at the phalanx of, of of news media that was there. And the only thought I had was, wow, you know, I'm glad that you're here, but where were you for STS-60? Where were you for, for, for STS-53 you know, and so on? Uh, can the effect change? You know, can this report, you know, kind of sort of made, make people aware of the plight of the Space Coast and how um, how just just there's a ripple effect uh, with with NASA programs, it's not just you know the people that that work for NASA that are get damaged. It's the people around the vicinity that get damaged. I hope so. Um, I mean, to a lot of first for a lot of folks that actually you know work in places like the Vehicle Assembly Building during the, the shuttle program, it was more of a of a calling than it was a, a, a the rest of us who just you know merely you know hold down a job and have have dinner. This was this was as I said a calling to everybody from from the person that that swept the floors at, at night to the to the folks that oversaw the the, the vehicles themselves. Um, it was you know it, it was something intrinsic, and I'm just hoping that that this report, although albeit late, is now focusing on what what the space coast is like after shuttle and and what how bad off it is. Will it come back? Um, I guess it really all depends on if commercial crew takes off, if you know the SLS and the Orion uh, come to fruition, or are we just going to continue to see the decay of that area? Um, you know, it, it, w- it will be very interesting to to see what happens to the Space Coast in the future. And uh, I know this is a bone of political. Uh, contention as well. It's going to be interesting to see how this translates uh, to uh, the presidential election this year. I, I know this place is going to bounce back eventually. The problem is, can these neighborhoods survive in the meantime? Right. Will it be too late? Yeah, that's my question. Because already as is, unemployment rate in Brevard County is 11% according to the um, according to the CBS piece. Wow. You know, and that's, again, intrinsic on how much this community really, really depended on, on, uh, on the Kennedy Space Center for a lot of their, their, their jobs. I've been to the Kennedy Space Center three times, 
once during an offseason where it, there was no launches or anything at the moment, once during the first last night launch STS-130, and then the final one, STS-135. So I've seen it at a not-so-busy point and at a busy point. Mark, you've probably seen it more than that, and what have you noticed over as the shuttle program has ended? What have you noticed about the area? Well, the tough part there is that since the final shuttle flight, July of 2011, I've only been in that area for a handful of days or parts of days, actually. And so I've spent more time inside the gate than outside. And so I don't really know too well how the community has been impacted. Uh, If I lived in the area, I certainly would. But uh, being 160 some miles away is far enough to separate you from the uh, the first-hand observation. Um, I know that there's a lot of things that can impact a community in a, in a drastic and negative way. This is certainly one, and it's certainly one that's very personal for some very highly trained and some very expert people in their fields that have been affected. Um, other things that I think of that affect communities is uh, eight years ago, in central Florida, having, I think, three or four tropical storms slash hurricanes crisscross one county in central Florida. Uh, that area was devastated. Of course, think of New Orleans with Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. Um, other disasters that, uh, that we hear about throughout the world. Uh, some of those are more understandable. Something like this that the writing was on the wall a long time ago is certainly tougher to swallow and and a lot tougher to, to not say something like, why did this happen the way it did? And I've seen in my employment with the Federal Aviation Administration situations where the FAA made changes in how business was run, things were, government jobs were contracted out, and I would have hoped that employees would have been looked out for and a small number were, but a lot were just essentially sent their pink slips and left to fend for themselves, either by taking a job with a contractor, having their years of government service and retirement essentially just cut with no real hope for continuing government service. And that's one of the big disappointments. Of course, we're talking about a lot of contractors in KSC. But still, you, you have benefits that you accrue through, through years of, of working with a company or working with the government, and you look to see that come to a point where you feel like you're going to earn something back for it when you uh, get closer to retirement. And all of that's gone, and it's, a, it's certainly a shame. I wish I could tell you more about the community but unfortunately, my time is so short getting in and out and back to home and back to back to my my real job that I, I miss a lot and don't get the firsthand experience of it. But I think everything you've described is is probably accurate in the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I mean, I could I've walked around uh, the Titusville area and there's there's one mall and it's almost almost right the oddly enough it's almost right across the way from a park and I please I, I don't remember exactly which park it park it is it's probably Space View Park because you can see the vehicle assembly building all lit up over there but um, there's this one strip mall nothing's there nothing 
It's just, you know, the entire mall is just abandoned. And you still see, you know, businesses, you know, a lot of for sale signs on the homes, a lot of for sale signs on on, on businesses and so on. And, and that's just in Titusville. So I can just imagine what it's, what, what, what it's like in, in the outskirts of uh, areas, too. So... Well, of course, we're always hoping for the best to everybody that's down on the Space Coast because we know a couple of people ourselves and hoping the best for everybody in Brevard County, Florida, and hoping that things turn out a little bit better for you. And if you'd like to see the entire piece, again, I'm not sure about out of the United States, but if you are in the United States, you can go to cbs.com slash 60 minutes, six zero, and then the word minutes, and check that out. Now, we were talking a little bit about the difference between the government space and commercial space. And Gene, I believe you have a story that involves a little bit of commercial space? Yeah, I certainly do here. Uh, last week, uh, and I'm looking at an article from Spaceflight Now dated uh, today, April 2nd, they were talking about a, uh, a hearing that uh, NASA Administrator Charlie Bolden testified in front of the, the Senate Appropriations Committee uh, back on March 28th last week. And he was unfortunately on the hot seat again. Uh, this was due to the fact that a lot of folks in the Senate are seeing, um, well, they're, they're basically claiming that NASA is robbing Peter to pay Paul. They're claiming that NASA's commercial crew uh, program is way behind schedule. And in order to go ahead and make sure the commercial crew is getting the money it needs, NASA's taking money from the Orion and SLS programs, and trying to fund the CC Dev program with that. I'm not exactly too sure if that's really, really happening or not, but there are two schools of thought. Uh, one is in the support area, which is uh, none other than, um, excuse me, Senator Barbara McCluskey, saying that she is all for commercial crew. In fact, the article quotes her that uh, she really thinks this is a good move, but she's got some very, very concerns about it about its schedule. And Phil McAllister, who is the head of the commercial uh, uh, space flight office in, in NASA, basically has said if there's really any more delays in this program, um, people are going to really, really start doubting its viability. Um, you know, and basically without, you know, the, the request that's out there, which I think is what, according to the article, is about $830 million to fund um, – commercial crew in 2013 um the 2017 date that they have uh etched in stone right now for commercial crew to start either it be you know spacex or sierra nevada or any of the companies that are that are vying for uh, for a contract um that date's going to slip yet again which again is kind of interesting because the iss is due to splash they're talking about to 2020 but even in in the hearing, there was some talk about um, 2020 not exactly being the limit. I think the engineers have basically said we could theoretically extend it out to 2028 if we had to. Even Charlie Bolden during the hearing basically said that you know he's not going to you know, marry the the 2020 date, um, but he also said that requiring you know it would require an agreement between all the international par partners to continue flying ISS past that point. The real deal was uh, with Senator Kay Bailey Hutchinson basically really, really laid it on the line and, and basically said, look, NASA, um, you're rene reneging on agreements here with Congress that you made back in 2011. 
stating that the agency's three top priorities, and I'm going to quoting from the article here, are one, exploit the International Space Station, develop the space launch system and the Orion spacecraft for deep space exploration, and to complete construction of the James Webb Space Telescope. She sees that a lot of money still may be going to the commercial crew program, and these programs may, take, may get dinged because of it. My thoughts on this whole thing, how about this? Um, how about going ahead and making sure that NASA's given the funds it, it needs to go ahead and carry out the portfolio that um, that it's charged with? Right now, you know, I mean, uh, I know I realize that there was a cut this time, or or the NASA budget relatively, I'm sorry, relatively stayed flat, and. Um, uh, Administrator Bolden is saying, well, flat is like the new up. Um, a lot of people have different thoughts on that, basically saying, you know, flat is flat. But if, if you're going to go ahead and charge this agency to do these things, how about giving it the money it needs to do the job? And I just don't see, <laughs> for years, NASA has always been given a portfolio of, of, of missions and work to do without having the funding to actually carry out that portfolio. And we still get some stunning stuff regardless. But it, it, it's just, it, you know, we keep underfunding this agency and we keep expecting it to, to continue to pull rabbits out of its hat. So, guys, you know, the, the Congress to you that hold the purse strings, yeah, you can fling mud all you want, but you're not, you're still not funding this program at levels where it should be. And if you're going to go ahead and, and accuse NASA of playing games, okay, fine. That's pro that may be the case. I don't know. I have to do do my homework on that. But look in the mirror and say, are we really, really partnering with this agency, and are we going ahead and giving it the the funding it needs to do its job? I don't think we are. I think that's a given in general is that we're not giving it what it needs. Yeah, I mean uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson just a few weeks ago said that we, you know, we give NASA about a half penny out of the entire you know, tax dollar. There's a movement out there started by a gentleman in Oregon whose name escapes me right now, um, Penny for NASA. And he's put out a petition on change.org saying, well, why not, in, instead of giving a half penny for every U.S. taxpayer, how about cranking it up to a penny and see what happens? And I think then you, you'll probably have an agency that's going to have the ability to carry out a portfolio that it, that it, it could be proud of. So let's keep let, – let's really keep, keep you know, this all in perspective here. Yes, NASA might have been playing some you know, fiscal games and so on. Again, I don't know enough about that end. I will I'll freely admit it, and I have to do my homework on that. But, you know, Congress, you hold the purse strings. So – You've got to go ahead. It's up to you to go ahead and give this agency the money it needs to, to carry out the portfolio of missions that you've given it. So, as always, this will be entertaining to see what Congress does with the United States taxpayers' money. Oh, yeah. Always is. And that's with anything, but we'll keep an eye on the space aspect of it. Speaking of keeping an eye on space aspects, Mark, what have you been keeping an eye on for us this week? Well, other uh, shows that we've had recently, I've accused myself of looking back and living in the past. Well, this time I'm looking forward. And uh, anybody ever hear about uh, some changes to a network that are 
that are planned where your network is going to be better? Doesn't that sound good? Well, how about if it's a space network and it's the ground segment? I know when I said space network, everybody thought, oh boy, I can get a job, you know, doing network stuff with satellites. Well, yeah, sort of. This is about a, a project that NASA is in the, in the process of putting together, and it's called the Space Network Ground Segment Sustainment. This project is something that will be key to upgrading the existing network, which provides some global space-to-ground telecommunications for NASA low Earth orbit and near-Earth spaceflight missions. Now this, uh, I'm going to use an acronym, SGSS. The Space Network Ground Segment Sustainment is part of an effort to sustain the existing network and improve it to allow for operations and maintenance to work in a better fashion in the future. This was implemented in the early 80s. It was refreshed in the mid-90s. The TDRS, for instance, the Tracking Data Relay Satellites, the TDRS Ground Terminal, and this is where we get to the ground part of the network. The ground terminal hardware and the software, think of it as where they command and control the satellites, the point where data is uh, switched and, and, and uh, directed, which satellites have which traffic and how it all intercommunicates. The ground terminal hardware and software is old, increasingly difficult and expensive to sustain. I can relate to that with some of what I work with. Now, they, this factors some substantial risk for highly reliable service in the past, for the past two decades, but this needs to continue into the future. Now, the space network and ground segment, the infrastructure is going to be replaced with some new state-of-the-practice technology. They'll put new architecture for each of these ground terminals for this uh, TDRS system. They're going to allow easier technology refreshes. It's going to simplify future expansions. They'll have an increase in customer data rate capabilities, and it's going to lower operations and maintenance costs. This phase B that was just approved and allows them to continue to the next step is where they'll be finalizing designs for the project and implementing the systems. They'll develop them. They'll move through critical design reviews, and then they'll start coming up with the actual technology. This is planned to be operational by 2016. And one of the statements that uh, I thought was, was good is that this decision point that was approved is a major achievement. This is from the project manager at Goddard Space Flight Center, Roger Clayson. He said it was gratifying to see at all levels of management recognition of the importance to the future of NASA space communications capabilities. So this is kind of one of those nuts and bolts things in the background that you have to have. And when you think about it, they're taking a network that's been in operation for 30 plus years, that the last technology refresh was 15 to 20 years ago. They're going to take this, this communications network and they're going to upgrade it in place. And so it has to continue operation. They don't want to lose any minutes or hours or days of service because that's critical to communications with satellites in low Earth orbit and certainly the ISS as well. And they want to accomplish this and get to where they can start saving some money with some new equipment that's easier to maintain. I just think it's uh, something that I thought I'd talk about since I relate to the equipment side of, of technology and 
particularly things that are old. And, and old isn't necessarily bad, but it can sure be challenging to keep it going. This equipment, Mark, supports what in, exactly in the infrastructure? Well, think of it as just uh, the general description I found was global space-to-ground communications. Wow. So we're talking so, basically the whole shooting match. So if it goes between up there and down here, and it's in low-Earth orbit or near-Earth spaceflight missions, it's part of this uh, part of this network. Now, that would exclude things like... Um, the Mars rovers, the right. Mars Curiosity that's in flight, the mission to Juno, you know, far-flung explorer-type satellites. This wouldn't necessarily include them, but they're part of the deep space tracking network, which this, I don't believe, necessarily addresses, but is probably right. kind of connected to in some ways. Just an observation, MSL hit the hit the halfway point, so we're, we're halfway to Mars right there, so that's, that's kind of cool. I just thought I'd throw that in. Speaking of which, we've reached the one-third way point in this episode. <laughs> so let's move on to round two of stories, which I'm going to start it off with another type of satellite, except this one isn't necessarily old, but just bad luck on the launch and then some interesting decisions, which we'll talk about. Now, the satellite was called Express AM4. It was launched by Russia, and it was launched back in August of 2011. The problem was the third stage of the Proton rocket, which it launched on, had some issues. And instead of reaching its planned geostationary orbit, it reached a different orbit than it was intended. The Russians then immediately called the mission a failure. However, there was one company that didn't believe it was a failure. The company Polar Broadband Systems tried to save the spacecraft. What they were going to do is they were going to try and adjust its orbit using the fuel on board so that it would fly right near where it was already, right over Antarctica, so that its research teams could use it for communications as well as to do sciences. However, even though they offered and pleaded and begged, the Russian government decided to still destroy the satellite upon re-entry. What do you think about this decision rather than repurposing the satellite to call it dead regardless and burn it up. I, I'll have some choice words for it, but that's another story. Um, I'll quote here a, a Space.com article on the uh, on the effort. The satellite, as you pointed out, had been in the wrong or- orbit, um, I guess, since, what, August, Sawyer? Is, is, I believe launch uh, was August 18th, 2011. So it had been in that, that, that poor or- or- orbit since then. Um and I think that the explanation that the Russians were giving, according to the Space.com article, and why they decided to go ahead and, and deorbit the satellite, was that it had been exposed to, quote, harmful radiation in space. And while several plans to salvage the satellite were being reviewed, none were deemed feasible, close quote. But Polar Broadband basically said, eh, not so fast here, Sparky. Um... They said neither of the rationales, and I'm quoting the Space.com article here, neither of the rationales used for deorbiting, you know, radiation or whatever, just seem valid. Uh, the deorbit of the Russian satellite was a tremendous loss for the entire, you know, international scientific community, and more particularly, those personally conducting scientific research in the harsh and unforgiving environment of Antarctica, which I believe 
this tar that this satellite was going to be repurposed to do just that get you know communications and data from Antarctica to where it needed to go and I think that's what what they were they were gunning for on this um, I don't know that the radiation thing seems lame to me because all satellites are exposed to radiation up there, no? And according to that same Space.com article, wasn't the satellite scheduled to last 15 years? Yep, so obviously... Wouldn't that have exposed it to a large quantity of radiation over 15 years uh, rather it, than, you know, 8 months? Exactly. So so obviously the, the satellite was hardened against, you know, you know, the usual radiation hazards or it would have to be in order to go ahead and last that long. No. So I, I, I don't know if this was just saying, well, if we can't have it, you can't have it. And that's that. Or um, was there really, really a viable reason? This is Russia. They tend to play things close to the vest. And uh, I don't think we're really ever going to get an honest-to-God answer. I still say they missed out on a business opportunity, though. I agree, and a science opportunity as well, but... Yep. be nice to know the real story. I doubt we'll ever know for sure. Yep. Agreed. Exactly. Well, unfortunately now, parts of that spacecraft are in the bottom of the ocean, and we'll talk about something involved at the bottom of the ocean a little bit later in the show, but Gene, you've got another thing still up in space, right? Well, soon to be. Um, the uh, just real quick, the uh, the uh, Falcon 9 um, Dragon that's sitting on top of the uh, the Falcon 9 has been outfitted. Um, looking at again an article from Spaceflight Now, dated uh, March 30th. I believe that's carrying about a uh, 1,168 pounds of station-bound cargo, and uh, it's. These are nice to ha- have items. Um, it's basically foodstuffs, clothing, water. So that's getting ready to go. Um, launch for that is the end of this month, so we'll be looking forward to that. However, another uh, robotic spacecraft, the uh, ESA ATV, or uh, Automated Transfer Vehicle, um, they've decided to go ahead and terminate production of the ATV. There's a decision looming about whether to continue the program or not, and according to the article, again, this was from today on Spaceflight Now, they're basically saying that we're, they're essentially in the same boat as if we were to go ahead and try to restart shuttle. To, to quote the article, and this is from an ESA official by the name of uh, Bob Chesson who is a senior advisor with ESA's Human Spaceflight Directorate, basically said, quote, if we want to reopen the production line, an obsolescence problem and com- at the component level. Uh, so it sounds to me like they would run into the same problems. Like, you know, they'd have to go ahead and, and knock on contractor doors and say, uh, guys, we need this part. Um, and so on, but that's a darn. I hope they do get this thing restarted because it looks to me like it actually could be the basis of something you know, a lot bigger. I mean, we, there was some talk about using ATV at one point as the service module for the Orion. Uh, a lot of a lot of American companies got their feathers ruffled on that, but it would be an idea, you know, an idea to bring ESA in on 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 that program and and be a be a contributor to it. I believe uh, JAXA 2 has the HTV. 
um, to fly again. I believe they're talking about as soon as um, uh, 2017. Uh, the last ATV launch is scheduled, Sawyer, for 2014, if I'm not mistaken. That would be ATV-5? Yes, that would be. Right. So it's are we going to, you know, can we still use this thing? Now, the, the article goes ahead and continues to quote uh, NASA's Bill Gerstenmeier here saying that the ATV has allowed the uh, uh, filling of the propellant tanks on, on board the, uh, the IS, ISS. And since there's a lot of propellant on there, according to uh, Bill Gerstenmeier, quote, that, that has allowed us to essentially fill up the propellant tanks on board the ISS. So at this point, the unique capability of the automated transfer vehicle in carrying propellant is not really needed. And I believe um, ATV-3 is going to be staying at station for, what, about six months and will be used to, you know, help with propulsion um, and help with, with you know, boosting the, the station into higher orbits and so on. Do you think still ATV as a home in the uh, complement of the ISS family or, you know, ATV-5, it, it was a nice idea and, and be done with it? The big question is more of the benefits of it versus the negatives to it in terms of looking at cost and how much it costs to actually produce it and then to launch it and to man the control center for it during those times when it's necessary. And uh, there was also a short unnecessary shutdown on the vehicle, if I remember correctly, or some minor glitch. Right, there was on um, th- th- this time around, but they were able to go ahead and and get that uh, repaired in time for the docking. But um, that, of course, brings up the question: Is it worth it in the end? Personally, when you take a look at the quantity of cargo that I can bring up and the current means that there are to bring up cargo, I think it's a necessity. But then, when you take a look two years into the future. What vehicles are we going to be using to bring up cargo? And if we have the vehicles for it and we have something that can fly more frequently and more readily, then you have to take a look and say, okay, does it make sense for us to keep flying or do we just let the other companies take care of it, such as if they're ready for it, SpaceX? Well, yeah, you've got SpaceX and then um, Orbital Sciences with the Cygnus out of, uh, you know, Wallops Island there. But, um you, are we we we're going to ditch a capability before a new capability is online? You know, we did that before with shuttle. Now um, we've ditched that. The the U.S. does not have its own ability to launch its own crew because shuttle is now you know bound for museums. So um, you know, they're they're you know it's a double edged sword. Well, we'll have to see what ends up happening, but in the meantime, ATV-3, the Eduardo Amaldi, is aboard the International Space Station with supplies and fuel to boost it up as needed. Alright, speaking of boosting us up, let's boost us up and finish off our second go-around with Mark, which I believe may end up involving not so much boosting, but landing. You betcha. So, what are the possible problems you could have with landing a spacecraft? Something comes to mind is the challenges that the Apollo 11 astronauts faced on their first descent and landing on the surface of the moon. Well, this is being worked on by NASA with a lander called Project Morpheus. And essentially, this is a vertical test bed with some green propulsion systems and importantly, this autonomous landing and hazard detection technology. This was manufactured and assembled at Johnson Space Center and Armadillo Aerospace. This Morpheus 
is large enough to carry 1,100 pounds of cargo to the moon, for example. It's a full spacecraft with associated subsystems like avionics and software and guidance, navigation control, power distribution, propulsion, instrumentation. So any, all, all this stuff, what does it have to do with landing? Well, NASA is going to be building a hazard field at Kennedy Space Center at the shuttle landing facility. And this hazard field is going to have uh, all the bells and whistles. It's going to have craters. It's going to have boulders. And eventually, when Morpheus is ready, and it hasn't made its first free flight yet, it's made some tethered flights, but uh, when it's ready for free flight, they're going to be turning this landing area into a place where it'll launch, it'll fly something like a kilometer long surface approach, it'll avoid the hazards in the field and set down, and that's where it's headed. But first, they're going to have this hazard field that's going to be off the end of the shuttle landing facility runway be interesting to see that come into being, and especially when they start uh, using it to test the spacecraft that they're working on with Morpheus. And you know what? I just remembered another little tie-in that I wanted to make with autonomous landing and control of a vehicle. Today being April 2nd, couldn't help but uh, connect what I saw yesterday, April 1st, on Google's homepage. And this was a, uh, a link to the official Google blog where they talked about their self-driving car project and their connection with NASCAR that was going to result in a new project called Google Racing. And, of course, it's an April Fool joke, and it's tongue-in-cheek, but they show a vehicle with a, a, a kind of a camera LiDAR system, I guess, on the roof, and a race car driver in it with his hands sticking out the window like, you know, hey, we're driving hands-free. And, um, you know, they're talking about the challenges of a NASCAR a uh, race car that runs high speed and obstacle avoidance and how their software will enable this. Of course, it was an April Fool joke, but Google does have cars that have accumulated some 200,000 miles of driving without human intervention. So I bet you that uh, NASA and this Project Morpheus We'll have some successful landings, and it'll prove some good concepts and make some improvements to the software that they're basing it on as they go through the development of this project. I actually just heard a story today about that car with the 200,000 miles on it, which actually ended up driving a 95% blind person to a Mexican fast food chain. <laughs> that's not even a joke or April Fool's. There's actual video of it online, but if they could use that and... Uh, of all places, the shuttle landing facility is a great place to practice, and it's great to see that the facility is getting used as well. Yeah, indeed. All right, we're on to our final round of stories, which we're going to zip on through these final three and get some final stories out here. So comes back to me for my final one on this one, and we're going to be talking about the space launch system. Proposed, we'll see where it goes, but it has currently made a next step to a possible launch. The program completed Step 1 in a combined System Requirements Review and System Definition Review, which are NASA-led, and that will set requirements to further narrow the scope of the system design and evaluate the vehicle concept based on top-level program requirements, according to Spacetravel.com. Now, the reviews, what they will include is they take a look at the requirements for crew safety and interfacing with Orion, or the MPCV and to carry into deep space as well as the ground operations. So 
it's basically a large look at safety and narrowing that down so that way they can take a look at more parts of the vehicle and more aspects and narrow that down so they can hopefully get to a launch currently scheduled for 2017. Yep, good news. Uh, just hoping that things continue to go well. I know that's step, you know, three on a, you know, 1,000 or 5 million step process there they're going to be going through but uh a good start so we'll look forward to some good news and we'll see if uh, this thing actually really really takes flight now i mentioned earlier we were going to go underwater so gene grab your snorkel and what's coming up on this one? Oh boy interesting in <laughs> sawyer um last week uh jeff bezos of uh amazon fame uh said that he had detected with what he is calling quote state-of-the-art deep sonar it essentially helped him find a set of f1 engines or the to the saturn 5 now he's claiming it might have been from the apollo 11 spacecraft or that particular saturn 5 that that took you know neil armstrong uh buzz aldrin and michael collins to the moon it looks like if he's able to go ahead and, and bring this particular stage up to the surface, um, Charlie Bolden, uh, NASA administrator, has basically said, yeah, we're with you on this, Jeff, and we would we still own those pieces under there. It's, you know, according to, to law, that's still NASA's property. But NASA is asking that if you're able to bring one of the engines up, that it go to the Smithsonian. And if uh, they are not interested in that, that um, if they or if they decline a second engine or a second F1, that that second engine end up at the Museum of Flight in Seattle, as uh, Jeff Bezos has requested. What does this do? It's an interesting artifact to look at, and it would probably be an interesting thing to go ahead and 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 do and and so on. But um, I, I'm trying to figure out. From another standpoint, what what business does this really serve? I mean, this is not the way I looked at it. It is it's not you know um, Gus Grissom's Liberty Bell Seven. I mean, it, when they when that was pulled up, you kind of felt the piece of Gus was back because Gus was in that thing. I'm 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 sort of on the fence on this one. Yeah, it's, it it would be cool to have that. Yeah, it would be cool to go ahead and have that sitting in a museum somewhere, but. You know, other than than having an interesting artifact from from you know the Apollo days, um, what other purpose does that serve? I will say that Jeff Bezos is comp- is also the head and CEO of another company called uh, Blue Origin, um, that's also in the commercial crew um, sweepstakes. So we'll have to see, you know, what. If if this if he's just trying to get favor or, or whatever, so I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm trying to figure out what what to make of all of this. I'll I'll leave I'll, I'll throw that out to the floor, gang. What what do you what do you think on all this? I think it has honestly some great potential to it if it's completed and wherever it goes, you know people will go to see it because that is history. I mean, people go to see the Saturn V rocket itself, the real ones that never launched, the models, they'll go to see any of it. So to see a real engine would be amazing. And also I find it interesting his choices of locations of where he wants them to go. NASA owns those those artifacts regardless. And if somebody brings them up, they're still property of the American people. NASA has basically said that they want uh, one of the F1s to go go to the Smithsonian. 
The second one, if the Smithsonian doesn't want it, um, it, NASA is basically saying that this F-1 engine will be on loan, essentially, to the Museum of Flight in Seattle, where Jeff Bezos wants it to be as payment for bringing it it up. So I'm still trying to figure out, though, what intrinsic value this is going to have down the line. That's just me. Without a doubt, sentimental more than anything. Yeah, true. Anything that has Apollo 11 on it, people go crazy over it. Well, the question is, too, how do we know that these? Are, this is the Apollo 11 engine? Do we know where exactly, you know, did, did somebody actually spot where that particular S-1 crashed into the Atlantic uh, during ascent? Do so, they have verification numbers on them or that's identification, what I need, mission specific? That's what I need to need to find out. I'm not sure. I, I know, mean, NASA was able to track the segments of the solid rocket boosters, which missions they flew on. I don't see why they wouldn't be able to. And the engines as well. I don't see why I wouldn't be able to figure that out. Yeah, well, again, I the, the SRBs were probably designed with that kind of tracking in mind because we knew we were going to be reusing them over and over again. Um, I'm not sure that such a thing existed on the Saturn. I need to go ahead and do my homework on that. I know in the military you've got NSN and numbers and so on that are specific to pieces and, uh, and serial numbers that are specific to pieces. So I will have to do some digging around and find out if if those numbers exist and then if they do then they can match it up and lo and behold yep that's from apollo 11 so all right and now we move on to one last story and once again mark you get to close us out okay well this is sort of a fun one one of the blogs that i occasionally take a look at and i'm always happy to read what's there is called Geeked on Goddard, G-E-E-K-E-D, on, G-O-D-D-A-R-D, Geeked on Goddard. It's uh, geeked.gsfc.nasa.gov, and I guess we'll put a link to that in the notes rather than me explain it all. But they recently posted a slideshow that features some phenomenal NASA images set to an excerpt of a tune called Earth by a band which has given the uh, the folks that do this Geek on Goddard blog blanket permission to use their band's music and slideshows and videos. And so this particular one is a sampling of featured images from NASA Goddard Science and Exploration Directorate website, and it's an excerpt of One Ring Zero's composition called Earth. And it's uh, quite musical, and as you're watching it, I know that uh, that my brain was saying, I know what that is, and then the next picture comes up, and I'm trying to figure out what it was that I just saw. So it'll be a little challenge in image recognition to see what the sources are from some of these, but I think you'll enjoy how they've done such a, a great job of, of putting you know, beautiful, beautiful imagery to music, and I, I do like what uh, they do in this artistic sense as well as the the pictures and the facts that they present for us. So that's just a short one for me, Geek Don Goddard, and we'll have a link to that. Indeed, a link will be in the show notes. And with that, I believe that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here. Thank you for joining us tonight, Gene McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer. Always a lot of fun. And thank you all for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Good to be here. Stay tuned next week where we have a big announcement about space shuttle coverage. But... In the meantime, as always, have a great day, (laughs) night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.
Thank you.